Revelation 19. I want to encourage you at home, you can read aloud at home. And hopefully at home you're standing for the reading of God's Word. We have some folks with us tonight, and we're asking God tonight to meet with us here in this service. Verse 11, as I read, please. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. The armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in white linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth the sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. You might want to mark in your margin there that that's speaking about right there the, the battle of Armageddon. And he hath on his vesture and on his thighs a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. He cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together to the supper of the great God that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of the mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. Can you imagine such a sight? And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Father, again tonight, we thank you for the study of prophecy, and that the spirit of prophecy is the witness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're thankful for the book of Revelation and what you've taught us, what you've ingrained into us. I pray for anybody that's watching by live stream tonight that's not saved. I pray that the fear of God would grip their hearts about the great tribulation, the importance of getting saved now that now is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Father, I've asked tonight for an enablement, a fresh anointing of God. For many who've been around the faith for a long time, this is a familiar truth. 
is not an old truth that's gone stale, but it's a familiar truth. And to fathom that perhaps in our lifetime, the rapture and the revelation of Jesus Christ could happen. I pray, Father, you help us to occupy till you come. And having done all, to stand and then to stand again. I pray for a holy people this evening. I pray to be a holy preacher, for a holy message, a holy God who might even rapture us tonight. Oh God, I pray for some who've heard the gospel over and over and over again, who put off receiving Christ. I was thinking about this afternoon, those who've put off Christ because they just, they don't feel a compulsion. And the fear that being reprobate, their heart and their faith, and blaspheming the Holy Spirit of God and His invitation, that's a fearful thing to me tonight. I'm fearful, Lord, that Jesus could come Many will be like those foolish virgins who were not saved. They didn't have oil in their lamps. I'm fearful, Lord, that we are so caught up with the things of the world. We're not pressured. We're not moved by an urgency we need to have. Oh, God, we read this exciting passage of Scripture, stir our hearts once and again. Thank you for the privilege to preach your people. They're loving people. They're, they're a Bible people. People that love your word. This is a great congregation. I thank you for it. Stir us, we pray, this evening to be a people zealous of good works. And we'll thank you for what you'll do in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's amazing. We've studied through Revelation We've had a glimpse of the church age. We've seen the rapture. We close off Revelation chapter 3. We get to Revelation chapter 4 verse 1 and we see the rapture. The church is no longer mentioned. Beginning chapter 4 Revelation. The church is not mentioned. We come back here in chapter 19 with them but we're called part of the armies of heaven. The church is raptured. There are seven years of great tribulation. The word tribulation in Latin is the word tribulum. When two, when there's, a, there's an object that's being squeezed by two opposite objects, and the very life of that object in the middle is squeezed. It's pressured. The tribulation is the time of Jacob's trouble. God's judgment on Israel, read about that in Romans chapter 11 there. Jews will get saved during the tribulation. Thank God for that. But Jews will also suffer. Great martyrdom. 
perhaps equal to the summation of all the years of martyrdom of Christianity. What happened during those seven years? By all estimations, according to the Bible, over one-third of the world would be killed and die off over a seven-year period of time. You think about it. If the, if the world right now is close to 8, million, 8 billion people, that's a lot of people. It's over 2 billion people. Martyrs, bloodshed, cataclysmic chaos, not just global warming, global chaos, economic failure, the world buying into the lie, the delusion of Satan, his superman, his energized individual called the beast, his false prophet. And the Bible amplifies very colorfully for us these judgments of God, the wrath of God during the tribulation. The seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, seven bold judgments. We see a revival of the Roman Empire, signified by ten kings, if you would, or ten nations. Coalescing, pledging their support, their power to the Antichrist. How he'll break a seven-year covenant with Israel about at the three-and-a-half-year mark. And Israel will be under great persecution. Now we come to chapter 19. We saw last week the marriage supper of the Lamb. The church is raptured. The church goes through the, the, uh, the, the uh, judgment seat of Christ. She, she's purged. We find the picture here. She's clothed in fine linen. He's made ready for himself a bride. The marriage supper has occurred in heaven. And now we see the greatest of all battles occurring the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Brother and sister in Christ, Jesus is coming. He's coming again soon. He's coming again in reality. He's coming again. This is not a theory. This is not a fable. This is not a fairy tale. This is not somebody's conjecture or something. Listen, Jesus is coming again. The first time Jesus came to this world, he came as our Redeemer. The next time he comes, he'll come as a ruler. The first time he came, he faced a cross. The second time he comes, he'll be wearing a crown. The second time he came, there was a tomb. The next time he comes, there'll be a throne. I want you to see some things about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the second coming, and so we can understand the Bible. Number one, would you notice, Jesus is coming conspicuously. Jesus is coming conspicuously. Look at verse 11. John said, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Jesus' coming is in two stages. Stage number one is the rapture. He comes for us, and no eyes will see him. He'll rapture the church. No one on earth will see him. The rapture. 
The coming here is called his revelation. At his revelation, the Bible tells us every eye shall see him. And this is so important because there are supporting verses of Scripture that corroborate what we're reading here. John saw heaven open and Jesus sitting on a white horse. He's to be differentiated from the false Christ who's sitting on a white horse in the seven seal judgments there over in Revelation 6. In Matthew 24, if you'll look at your scriptures tonight, Matthew 24, Jesus himself made mention of the fact that he will be visible, he will be conspicuous at his revelation. It says in Matthew 24, verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Catechismic chaos. In verse 30, and there shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. When Jesus ascended to heaven, the disciples were standing there, and they looked up into heaven. They were gazing with such a marvelous sight. And the angels stood by them. They said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you to heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. John, as he opened up Revelation chapter 1, he said, Behold, he cometh with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Hey, listen, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ's revelation will be conspicuous. We will know who he is. He will sit on that horse, that white horse, and he will have a name on him called Faithful and True. Phase one is called the rapture. Phase two is the revelation. Paul distinguishes it for us. Notice Paul in his writings, first of all, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with the shout of the voice of the archangel, the trump of God. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord at the rapture. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul makes very clear to us there will be the resurrection of, the, of, the old, of, of those who died in Christ, those who have predeceased us. Brother Frank Capone's mother just went home to be with the Lord. She'll be part of that group. They'll be, they'll be raised up. We have a family, a husband, a wife, they're reached through so many. One of our deacons actually knocked on their door several years ago and reached them. They started coming to church for a period of time, but because of health, they stopped coming. The husband went home to be with the Lord, I don't know, about three or four years ago, and we met with the family, encouraged them during that time. We got a phone call this morning after, after the morning service that the wife had been battling with dementia. She just went home to be with the Lord, and they're going to be part of that great resurrection. You're watching this morning, this evening, you're not saved. You want, to be, you want to be part of this rapture that's going up. And after those who predeceased us have, have gone up, immediately we're going to follow them in the air, the twinkling of an eye. We'll be raptured. We'll be harpazzled. We'll be snatched out of this world. And I want to tell you tonight, just so it's very clear, we are a pre-tribulation church. We're not going through the tribulation. God has not appointed us to wrath. 
Read your Bible very carefully. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning verse 15, all the way through chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verse 10. We are pre-tribulation church. In fact, they re-emphasize that. It's even found there in Revelation chapter 3. When Jesus spoke to the church at, at, at Philadelphia, he said, he told us that the church will not go through the hour of temptation. We're a pre-tribulation church. By the way, we are a pre-millennial church. We're going to be taken up before the millennium. We're not going to go up after them. We're not post-trib. We're not post-millennial. Paul talked about the tribulation that follows the rapture. And I know you've heard it many times, but I want our doctor to be correct, and I want, I want us to have that fear of God. Listen, tonight, if you're not saved, you're not saved. You put off getting saved. Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2 that when you enter that great tribulation period, you won't get saved. Because you're going to believe the devil's lie. There'll be a spirit of deception that'll be set. And because you've put off putting off receiving Jesus Christ, you'll be so reprobate. You will not get saved during that tribulation time. With all that I can tell you tonight, by the mercies of God, God is merciful and God is long-suffering and God is reaching out to you. Why would you not want to get saved? Why would you not want to receive Jesus Christ as Savior? Why would you want to put off salvation, which is the free gift of God for you tonight to get saved? And after seven years of tribulation, which is where we're at now, Paul distinguished the rapture from the revelation. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul said in verse 7, 2 Thessalonians 1, To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Notice this, in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know God. Remember this morning we were over there in Isaiah chapter 34 talking about the burnings? Flaming fire. That's literal. Taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That's the centuries what I was telling you this morning that there'll be a battle and there'll be a bloodshed and there'll be a burning and there'll be a bleakness. Verse 10 says, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe because their test among you that, that, that was believed in that day. Jesus at his revelation will come as king. He's going to come conspicuously. Every eye will see him. There'll be mourning and wailing when they see him. Secondly, Jesus will come conspicuously, but secondly, Jesus is going to come convincingly. Look at our passage tonight. Jesus is coming convincingly. There's no mistake, they're going to know it's Jesus. There's no mistake, they're going to know it's Christ. They're going to know it's the King of kings and Lord of lords. Notice, first of all, he's going to come with authenticity. Notice, behold a white horse and he that sat on. Listen, kings rode on white horses when they went to battle. They rode on a donkey when they symbolized peace to indicate a triumphal entry. But listen, here Jesus is coming on a horse. Don't make no mistake about it. He's coming with authenticity. A true king. A reigning king. 
a mighty king. Listen, the king of all kings. Go back with me to chapter 6. I alluded to it a little bit earlier. When the seven seal judgments are open, the first seal, they saw these four beasts, and the first of the four beasts in verse 2 says, And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that saw it on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering to conquer. Hey, listen, this was a false Christ. This is the, this is the beast. This is the Antichrist. Jesus doesn't need a bow because you know what? He comes with the sword from his mouth. He comes with authenticity, majestically riding on his white horse. Listen, he comes with ascription. There are some things the Bible tells us here about this ascription. And he that sat him was called faithful and true. If you want to magnify the attributes of God, those are two great words right there. Amen? Faithful and true. Faithful and true. Sometimes, sometimes you'll hear this, someone say, well, God wasn't there for me. No, he was there for you. You may have in your mind an idea of what God's supposed to do, but God is not your puppet to do what you want him to do. God will not be manipulated. God will not be mocked. And he's true. We may not agree with everything God does, but I remind you what Joseph said. Listen, they may mean it for evil, but God always means it for good. Notice in verse 11 it says, And in righteousness, not in partiality, not in corruption, in righteousness, he doth judge and make war. Why is the battle of Armageddon going to happen? Because he's coming in righteousness. The patience of God is over. He must come and do battle with those who have relentlessly refused him and have shaken their face in him. I don't know about you, but it's, a, it's just a crazy thought to think about how demonized the world will be to, that all the kings of the earth will be so consumed by those demonic entities we read about in Revelation 16. They'll gather themselves together in the valley of Megiddo and the valley of Estralon. They'll gather together thinking they can fight our Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah eleven four 4, speaking about the righteous of our Lord, says, But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. That's going to be fulfilled right here in Revelation. Chapter 19, verse 2 says, For true and righteous are his judgments. Hey, listen, one of the great names of our Lord Jesus Christ is Jehovah Sitkanu, Jehovah, the Lord our righteousness. Then notice verse 12. It says, He had a name written that no man knew but he himself. Verse 13, it says this, And his name is called the Word of God. In verse 16, He hath on his vesture, on his thigh, a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Hey, Harry Ironside said this. This is so encouraging. Harry Ironside said about, about these names that, that he has, that, that this description of our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, In these three names we have set forth our Lord's dignity as the eternal Son, second, his incarnation, the Word became flesh, and last, his second advent to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. It's all summed up right there. He's coming with authenticity. He's coming with an inscription. 
He's coming with an appearance that we know is Christ. Look at his appearance. Verse 12, it says, And his eyes were as a flame of fire. As a true judge, he sees, us, he sees right into the heart of every man. Here reminds you tonight, brother and sister in Christ, there's nothing hidden from the eyes of our Lord. He sees it all. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the good and the evil. Flames of fire, piercing through the motives of nations and individuals. He is all seeing. Nothing's hidden from our Lord. Then it says in verse 12, on his head were many crowns. Back in those days, kings who conquered, they'd wear a crown for every nation they defeated. It was a big thing to be a conqueror back in those days. Ptolemy Philometer, when he entered Antioch as conqueror, he wore a triple crown, two for Egypt and a third for Asia. Jesus is the undisputed king. The Bible says on his head were many crowns. Why? Because every nation represented there in the Valley of Megiddo that would try to defeat our Lord, they are defeated by him. He has a, has a crown on his head representing he's a victorious Lord. The Bible says in verse 13, he's clothed in a vesture, a garment, a robe dipped in blood. They'll behold the wounds in his hands. They'll see that vesture and be reminded he died on the cross for their sins. He shed his blood as the payment price for sin, and he was rejected by all. The word dipped is a very interesting word. Literally means immersed, to stain with a color. It's different from the word we use for baptism. The word baptism literally means to be buried. The word here, bapto, means to be dipped in completely and coming out. It's a different color. When you get baptized, baptism is not going through emotion. Baptism is not another check mark off the list of things you're supposed to do. Baptism is a, is a symbol, a significance concerning your sanctification in Jesus Christ. That's why it's found in Romans chapter 6 there. It indicates there's been a change in your life. That something that's died, something new has risen up. You don't get baptized and go out and you, you get saved and then get baptized. But you don't get baptized and continue on the same bad habits, the same things you used to do. Baptism signifies as a testimony telling everybody that I'm a different person, that I'm saved. And Jesus Christ sits on the throne of my heart. And I'm going to live for God. And I'm going to be, I'm going to be obedient to the Lord. And I don't plan on yielding my members as members of unrighteous any longer. He comes conspicuously. He comes convincingly. All the eyes of the world will look upon Jesus Christ. They'll look at him and they'll see him by his subscription. They'll see him by his appearance. They'll see him by his authenticity. They'll know that is the Son of God who's coming to, gain, to take back his kingdom. Notice verses 14 to 21. He comes as to conquer. The sight, as I mentioned this morning, is Estrelon. Barak fought there, beat the Midianites. Gideon fought there, then beat the Midianites. Barak fought there and beat the Canaanites. 
Notice, if you would, verse 14, we see the battalions. First of all, we see the armies of heaven. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Hey, they knew without any shadow of doubt that the ones coming with them were just like Jesus. That's you and me. That's you and me, beloved. That's the armies of heaven. But we see an opposing force. We see the Lord's adversaries. We see the Lord's army, but we see the Lord's adversaries. Look at verse 19. When I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. Jude says something about that. Jude, in his, in his uh, message there about apostasy, he talked about that. He said about, he talked about Enoch. The Bible says Enoch in his preaching talked about Enoch. I mean, he was way in the beginning, one of the earlier patriarchs. And Enoch, Enoch saw that, and he preached about it. He preached about the second coming of Christ. I mean, he was a second coming preacher. Listen, I don't have much time for somebody who doesn't preach the gospel. I don't have much time for somebody who doesn't preach about sin. I don't have much time for anybody who doesn't preach the whole counsel of God. And I don't have time for somebody who doesn't talk about and preach about the second coming of Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Jude, verses 14 and 15, and Enoch also, thank God he was one of the, the fraternity of those who preached about Jesus. The seventh from Adam prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed. And of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. I mean, Jude's message right there in verse 15 of Jude, Jude chapter 1, verse 15, basically summarizes the sentiment, the mindset, and the hearts of the people that are on planet earth during the great tribulation. They're ungodly. They're ungodly. Their deeds are ungodly. They're blaspheming God, they've worshiped the beast. And so when he comes to conquer, we see these battalions. We see the battle. Look at verse 15. I said some things about the battle in chapter 34 of Isaiah. This one I'm not going to repeat it. It's in verses 2 to 8. But verse 15 summarizes this. And out of his mouth... Go with the sharp sword. We saw that this morning, Isaiah 34. The sword of heaven. That with it, he should smite the nations. And then it jumps from there and tells us about the reign of Christ during the millennium. He says, he shall rule them with a rod of iron. A true theocracy during millennium. Hey, thank God during the millennium, we're not going to have all this unrest that's going on right now. It's going to be a true-led government. Amen? Christ will be in charge. And it says, and he treadeth the winepress of the fiercest and the wrath of Almighty God. This is the judgment of Christ. For you now to get a sense of that, go with me to Zechariah chapter 14. Would you do that? Would you go to Zechariah chapter 14 for a moment? I'm going to read some verses, and I'm going to make some statements. (laughs) 
Zechariah said in verse four, chapter, one, chapter 14, verse 1, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh. Now, remember, the span of the day of the Lord begins when the rapture occurs. It covers the tribulation period. And it culminates, it, it finishes up, it, it culminates at the second coming of Christ. And we saw in Isaiah 34, verse 8, it's the day of the Lord's vengeance. And he says here in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoils shall be divided in the midst of thee. Listen, all the riches that all the kings have, it'll, it'll be diminished. It'll be taken away from them. And he says, For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city shall be taken. The horses, the houses rif rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then it'll be at a time when the Jews are under intense pressure. They're crying out, wondering, if, well, will there be any help? Is this it? Then, the Bible says, then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. Verse 4 talks about his second coming. He's on that white horse. He's coming with the armies of heaven. It says in verse 4, And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof, towards the east and towards the west, and there shall be a very great valley. And half the mountain shall remove towards the north and half it towards the south. We read in Isaiah 34 that he defeats him with the sword of his mouth. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, he defeats him with the sword of his mouth. What is that? That's the word of God. Listen, Jesus doesn't have to shoot an arrow. He doesn't have to shoot a weapon. He doesn't have to do anything. He speaks the word and he defeats his enemies. That's how powerful the word of God is. Amen? He just speaks a word, the word of God. That's who he is and defeats them. We saw the bloodshed and carnage in Isaiah 34. Look at Zechariah 14, 12. And this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people. Did you see that? All the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet, their eyes shall consume away in their holes, and their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. Wow. They're standing there, gazing up at Christ. They're blaspheming him. And by the word of his mouth, the Bible says here, their flesh, their eyes, and their tongue shall consume away. Isaiah said it this way. He said in verse, chapter 34, verse 3, he said, their flesh, your carcass, will give up a stink. I mean, literally, the valley area will be littered with bodies of kings and princes and presidents and chiefs of staff and armies and generals and captains, and you name it, it'll be a who's who. A battle that Christ wins decisively and quickly. Look at Malachi chapter 4. Malachi 4, verse 1. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven. There you go again. By the way, he said, well, will be by fire. Listen, God is the God who answers by fire. Amen. That's what he said through Elijah. 
For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that, that, and the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. We saw that in Isaiah 34. Look at verse 3. Ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Revelation 17, 14, we saw this in a previous message, but this is what he says. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with them are called and chosen and faithful. That's the battle of Armageddon. Jesus comes to deal with those who are against him once and for all. We see the battalions. We see the battle, which go back to Revelation 19. Notice we see the birds. Now, I'm going to tell you this tonight, if you haven't figured this out. God has everything already thought through. We think God doesn't know. We think God doesn't plan. He's already thought it out. I mean, if he's going to establish his kingdom on earth, you think he's going to establish his kingdom on a, on a planet that's littered with bodies? Carcasses that are giving up their stink? Bloodshed everywhere? Blood up to the horse's bridle, all the way for about 182 miles in distance? No, God has a solution for that. Look at verses 17 and 18. And I saw an angel standing in the sun. Now remember, the enemies have been defeated. They've been slain by the sword of his mouth. Their flesh is consumed away. Their tongues have consumed away. Their eyes have been consumed away out of their sockets. And this angel shouts out as the messenger of God. He shouts out with a loud voice, a very clear, discernible voice. And he said, he said, but he's not talking to people. He says to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God. Now, in Revelation, we see this. We see two great banqueting feasts, amen? We see the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven, and we see the banqueting of the fowls on the, on the carcasses of those who were against Jesus Christ. You know, they say that, you know, the saddest thing for a person to happen to a person is to die on this earth and have no one there to properly give them a memorial to bury them to lay the remains at rest. If you died in those days in such a capacity you didn't have family to bury you, basically if you were a criminal, for example, your body was just left out for the, for the, for the, the scavenger birds to come down and consume your flesh away. And God's answer for these people, he's not going to leave all their flesh there. They're going to, the angel's going to call out all the birds and the fowls of heaven, the eagles and the vultures and the ravens and the hawks and the ospreys and all of these different birds. They're going to come down and feast on all their bodies. Look, watch what it says here. Come and gather yourselves together to the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. That's how he's going to take care of it. Look at verse 21. And the remnant that were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. That's how God takes care of it. And by the way, when we go to the millennium, those fowls will not be dependent upon, they will no longer be scavenger birds because that's not going to be the situation anymore. Amen? 
Look what Jesus said in Matthew 24. He spoke about that. Matthew 24, verses 27 28. For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even into the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. I mean, he's, he's giving us a narrative here telling us, listen, I'm going to come like lightning out of the east. Then he said in verse 28, for wheresoever the carcass is, who's he talking about there? All his enemies he's defeated on the battlefield. For wherever the carcass, wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Hey, God's answer, God's solution. He's going to defeat his enemies with the word of his mouth, by the sword that comes out of his mouth. And after he defeats them, an angel will come and call out for the birds of heaven to come down and feast on their flesh and consume it away. We see the battalions, we see the battle. You see the birds, would you notice verse 20? We see the banishment. Amazingly, the beast and the false prophet, they'll be somewhere in the forefront of that battle. They're going to watch and behold. Remember now, they're the agents of Satan. They're going to watch all these, this large multitude, whatever the number is, of kings and nations and people, slain, dropping dead right next to them, the blood flowing, flesh consuming away, eyes burn out of their sockets. They're going to be looking at Jesus. I promise you, they're not going to be looking down. They're going to be looking up. Every eye will see him. No one's going to be looking down. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that received the mark of the beast, and then that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire, burning with brimstone. God deals with his enemies. We look at the problems in our world. We wonder, how long, Lord Jesus? He's going to take care of it. He's going to deal with it. In our church, we have a diversity of concerns and anxieties. And foremost in many people's minds, this anxiety of Contracting COVID-19. They get tested. They're sitting there with anxiety and bated breath. I hope I don't test positive. Others have anxiety about illnesses and sicknesses. One of our missionaries... Sent us the letter yesterday or the day before. His wife, who we prayed for, they're missionaries to a restricted nation. His wife, who we prayed for, who had a very high-risk pregnancy. She has congenital heart failure in her family. She's had at least four, maybe five family members that have passed away with the same disease. She, has, she was diagnosed with the same heart problems. Had contracted some kind of an infection. She just gave birth just a couple months ago. She has an infection. She's hospitalized. He can't, he can't be with his wife because the hospital will not allow anybody in the room for fear of COVID-19. I mean, there's anxiety. 
Some of anxieties about your jobs, about your employment. How are you going to pay your bills? About your reserves that are shrinking. You're like Elijah. You've got a drying brook right now. There's all these anxieties. But I'm going to tell you tonight, the greatest anxiety a person should have is facing Jesus Christ as your judge. Of knowing that you did not repent of your sins and call on the Lord to save you. Jesus In Revelation 19, he comes convincingly. He defeats his enemies convincingly. He's defeated them. He's conquered them. And it's like Julius Caesar, when Julius Caesar defeated King Pharnaces for Pontus in Asia Minor, he said said this in Latin, Veni, vidi, vici. Veni, vidi, vici. Vici, which means I saw, I came, I saw, and I conquered. Jesus sees, he comes, and he conquers. You want to know how it's going to end? He conquers, amen? There's no loss. Yeah, it looks a little rough right now. And we're, we're a little anxious about riots in the street and our liberties being taken and a socialistic government, all these things are going up. But I'll tell you tonight, he's going to conquer. He's going to win. It's going to come out all right because he is on the throne and he never comes off his throne. And finally tonight, he comes conspicuously. He comes convincingly. He comes to conquer. And he comes as king. Amen. Zechariah 14 says, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. And that day there shall be one Lord, and his name one. Amen. One king, one Lord. On his vesture, the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, you get around presidents and kings and states of authority like that, Number one, you've got to be an incredibly strong personality to be in that position. You've got to have an incredible resilience to deal with the criticisms. You have to take the blame for everything. And when you do something good, not everybody acknowledges you. These men are in that capacity. They don't like to think of themselves as being second to anybody else. They like to think of themselves as always in competition, always trying to be above everyone else. Can you imagine before these enemies are defeated, these kings and these heads of states, they're going to look on that vesture very boldly. Everyone's going to read it and understand it. It says, King of kings and Lord of lords. They're going to know the true king has come. The true Lord has come. And you know what? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. He's king. He's king. The king who's God, the king who's glorious, the king who's gracious. Go with me to Hebrews 2.9. I want you to read something with me. Then I'm going to close with a thought. Hebrews 2.9. 
Hebrews 2.9 says, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. Notice, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Summarize there, summarize right in verse 9. It's the cradle. He was made a little lower than the angels. The cradle, he came as God incarnate. He came by way of a virgin birth. He had a sinless life. He was made a little lower than the angels because he took on flesh and blood. But he's without sin, praise God, amen. He's not like the Jesus Jehovah's Witnesses talk about. No, he's the Jesus who's God, amen. He was made a little lower than the angels. Notice we see the cradle, but secondly we see the cross. For the suffering of death, that he might taste death for every man. He died for men. And, and, and the writer of Hebrews, who I believe is impossible, does a wonderful job in Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, and talking about the sacrificial, substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. But he culminates it in verse 9. Now he's talking about the cradle and the cross. He talks about the crown. Crown with glory and with honor. That's our Jesus. Some little boys, probably about the age of Pastor AJ's two sons, Micah and Boaz, are trying to figure out a jigsaw puzzle. Hey, listen, you want to you teach your kids patience? Give them a jigsaw puzzle, a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle. Amen. And they're like typical little boys. They were rambunctious and impatient. They looked at all those pieces there and they scratched their heads. They said, and, they, and, and their daddy said, listen, don't you leave that spot till you put the jigsaw puzzle together. And they're messing with it. They're trying to, you know, they're trying to figure like we all do because, you know, men, men are kind of have a mechanical mindset. They try to fit the pieces, but they're realizing that not all the pieces fit exactly the way they want it to fit. Amen? The older of the two brothers happened to look at the box and he looked at the cover of the box because the first thing they, they were trying to figure out is how do we put this together? And they took a careful look at the picture of the box. And the picture of the box of the jigsaw puzzle was of a medieval kingdom. Surrounding were the walls of the, of the kingdom. So you can imagine all these layers of bricks on that perimeter. But in the middle, as they looked at the picture, the oldest son looked at the picture, was a king, right there in the center. And around him were all the couriers, all the servants, all the subjects. And the older brother, a light bulb went on, he said, hey, little brother, I figured out how we can get this done. Let's get the king in the center and everything else will come together. And as I close tonight, I remind you this evening, Get the king the center of your life and everything comes together. Make sure he's in the middle. Make sure he's in the center. Make sure he's the priority. Make sure everything you do with your life is about the king. Hey, don't wait till Jesus comes to call him king. He ought to be king of your life right now. He's king of kings. And he's Lord of lords. Make sure he's in the center. We're going to continue our study. We're not done yet. We're going to spend a little bit of time on the millennium next time. We're going to look at the great white throne judgment, the day of God, the new heaven and new earth. We'll spend some time on that. 
But I want to say this tonight. We, we've said all needs to be said about tribulation and judgment, demonic activity, the mark of the beast, who the beast is, who he's not, the false prophet, the everlasting gospel. If the preaching and the study of prophecy has not moved us to be any closer to the Lord, then we need to do what we saw this morning. Seek ye out the book of the Lord and read. Let it grip you. Let it compel you to be circumspect, to redeem the time, because the days indeed are evil. And if we're sleeping away on things, Paul said, Awake thou the sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. I want to give you an invitation watching by home this evening. Don't go back doing your same stuff. Live in anticipation of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to come for us first in the rapture. He will come for us. But it's revelation. We will come with him. We will come with him also on horses and in fine white linen to join him as he establishes his wonderful, his peaceful, and his perfect kingdom on earth. And this evening, if you're watching, you're not sure you're saved. Our church is an evangelistic church. Our church, we have people that have prayed, even though they don't know your name, they have prayed that you'd get saved. They have prayed that you would trust Christ as your Savior. You'd repent of your sins and call on the Lord to say, would you get saved tonight? Would you put off your excuses, your procrastination, all your reasons? And please, by the mercies of God, get saved tonight. You're kind of on the fringe. You've been straddling a fence as a believer. May I encourage you, by the love of God, get off the fence and get on board with Jesus. Live for the Lord. Young people, I'm going to tell you what. If all your focus is, is on your diploma and on your careers and things, you're in for a surprise. It's going to burn too. This has its proper place and role. But when you're skipping church, you're not in the Word of God, and you're walking around acting like everything's okay, when you need to have a humble heart before God, it's not okay. And if you're just, and if you're using COVID-19, listen to me tonight, if you're using COVID-19, you know some of you using COVID-19 as an excuse to not be in church, shame on you. Get church. Get to church. Don't hide behind COVID-19. Hide behind the cross, but don't hide behind COVID-19. Be holy, for he is holy. You say, well, I can't wait till the preacher gets off Revelation. I can't either, because I'm looking forward to preaching again. Because you know what? The Bible still has more prophecy for us to see. And the Bible has more preaching for us to hear. And the Bible doesn't get stale. And the Bible doesn't get old. Listen, it doesn't matter what book of the Bible we preach from. It's all good, amen? Let's get with it. Let's get with it. Tonight, if you're ready to get saved, I'm going to help you this evening. Tonight, if God's revived your heart, praise God. Live in a spirit of revival all the time. 
But if you're not moved, you need to get revived tonight. Those dead old bones need the breath of heaven to breathe into them and breathe some life in them tonight. You feel like God can't use you. I'll remind you tonight, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. That treasure is the Holy Spirit of God who lives inside you. Let him awaken you. Let him stir you tonight.